Thank you, Andy and the team. Good morning. It's good to see you. If you have your Bibles, please turn to 1 John chapter 2. We'll be looking at verses 3 to 11. Some time ago, I began a series in 1 John, some of you may recall. This is the third part of that series, and I'd like to begin by recapping where we've been in the book, which I think will be helpful context for us as John is leading us toward his teaching on agape love. So I will be looking at the, the beginning, pull back one, one page back, or, but at verse one. In the first four verses of this letter, John declares to us a glorious picture of God's redemptive action in Christ. From that which was from the beginning of time, the pre-existing self-sufficient one to his tangible manifestation in being heard, seen, looked upon, touched, and those increasingly intimate words that accumulate to emphasize the unmistakable witness of John and the eyewitnesses. They came to understand that it was the message of everlasting life was manifest in Christ, the Son of God, a real person. Oh, they saw him. And from those eyewitnesses, the proclamation ultimately to you. And why? Why did they do it? So that, it says in verse 3, you too may have fellowship with us, which is the fellowship with the Father and with his Son, Jesus Christ. And that framing of fellowship is so important in this letter. It wasn't for a mere private relationship with God that they were proclaiming it. It was rather to be joined in a fellowship, a single fellowship of you and me, the apostles, the redeemed around the world, the saints who have gone before, all joined together before a loving father and his son. And there, fullness of joy is found. This is what drove the apostles' proclamation, and it's the picture John would have us think of as he establishes the theological foundations for love. I love how Dietrich Bonhoeffer reflects on this reality of Christian fellowship in a book called Life Together. He says, Christian community means community through Jesus Christ and in Jesus Christ. There is no Christian community that is more than this and none that is less than this. Whether it it be a brief single encounter or the daily community of many years, Christian community is solely this. We belong to one another only through and in Jesus Christ. What does that mean? He goes on. It means first that a Christian needs others for the sake of Jesus Christ. It means, second, that a Christian comes to others only through Jesus Christ. It means, third, that from eternity, we have been chosen in Jesus Christ, accepted in time, and united for all eternity, end quote. There is no better community than the fellowship of the saints. Then in the last message from 1.5 to 2.2, John declares that God is light, which in the Bible refers to the ultimate radiance of truth and moral goodness. 
John's usage of light emphasizes that the two, truth and moral goodness, go hand in hand in the life of a believer. Then John gives us a series of what are called third-class conditional statements, which is explicitly identifiable in the Greek. It simply means we're given these conditional pictures and we let them speak for themselves. For example, let's say you have light on one side and darkness on the other. You can picture maybe a a platform or a stage. And in verse six, if we say we have fellowship with him while we walk in darkness, we lie and do not practice the truth. In other words, if God is light and we're wandering around in the dark, we clearly don't have fellowship with God who is light. So in this way, John is not simply telling us, he is showing us. He's showing us the absurdity of separating a person's notion of fellowship with God from the way they live. On the other hand, in verse seven, if we walk in the light as he is in the light, then what? Well, we have fellowship with God, of course, but what does it say there? Fellowship with one another. The ones that we're seeing when we're in the light. We're not alone in the light. That's the emphasis again. Fellowship with God who is light and fellowship with his children in the light go hand in hand for John. And from there, there are more conditional showing lies and misconceptions about sin. We learned that being in the light doesn't mean we never sin again. As a matter of fact, those walking in the light are the ones most aware of their sin because in the painful bliss of light, Our sin is exposed, and we confess it, and we're forgiven and cleansed, and we learn to forsake sin and walk in the light, though it's a process. In the light, Christ is our atonement for sin and our advocate before the Father. And he says in chapter two, verse one, my little children, John calls his readers my little children and beloved often in this 15-minute letter. And you'll notice the tenderness in John's voice, calling them children as beloved and also calling them God's children. As a father, you know, there's nothing quite like seeing my children who I love so dearly love one another. It's a good moment when Carolyn and I are sitting in the living room and we can hear our kids enjoying one another's presence in the other room. But more than short moments, I long for my kids to grow in their love for each other, looking out for the interests of the other, recognizing their shared identity as a family because I love them. Somehow, it's like I feel the way they treat each other. Parents, maybe you relate. Brothers and sisters, our father relates. How would he plead with us as I wish I could plead with my children or do something just to put love in them? What would he do to instill it in us. I hope that in these these verses in front of us, 
with the help of the Spirit, as we read the voice of John's fatherly heart, we will also hear behind him the voice of our Heavenly Father pleading with us to love his family. So Father, help us with this. We are often so hard-hearted, hard of hearing, stubborn. We think we have reason to hate sometimes. Forgive us, Lord. Help us to yield to your teaching in this passage. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen. So in today's passage, John is beginning his teaching on love towards the family of God. And there are three main thrusts in his pleading for love here. First, in chapter two, verse three to six, the keeping of God's commandments is a sign of genuinely knowing God. Second, seven to eight, love is a timeless commandment newly animated in God's children in an age of light shining and darkness passing. Third, nine through 11, those who love their brothers and sisters fellowship in the light and haters stumble alone in the dark. So number one, verses three to six, keeping God's commandments by walking in his love is a sign of knowing God genuinely. Let me read from three to six. And by this we know that we have come to know him if we keep his commandments. Whoever says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. But whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in the light ought to walk in the same way in which he walked. What confidence do you have that your knowledge of God is the real thing, a genuine thing, a true experiential and relational knowledge of him? And this may have been one of the questions for the original Christian readers who had exposure to false teachers who believed they had the real thing, real divine knowledge, the secessionists, as the commentaries call them, those who were, as it says in 2.19, among the Christian community, but were no longer among them. They moved on to something they thought was better and abandoned the teachings of Christ for something they thought was a, a better kind of knowledge of God. John will address doctrinal errors, but here he draws attention to the ethical sign of true divine knowledge. If we keep his commandments, that's the sign. That's the evidence that reveals the authenticity and genuineness of our knowing God. And now he'll expand with these conditional statements again. He'll present an absurd, contradictory picture in verse four and then a consistent picture in verse five. So in verse four, the one who says I know him but does not keep his commandments is a liar and the truth is not in him. Now that's a strong rebuke because there's a big problem with that person. The problem is he's a walking contradiction. We were not forgiven and cleansed to be living contradictions. But let's clarify a potential confusion. 
You might say yes, but we've been, we have, we're not saved by works. We're saved by grace. And Christ is my advocate with the Father, just like he said 10 seconds earlier in this letter, which means sometimes I'll falter. Yes, you will. And yes, if you've trusted him, Christ the advocate will always represent us before the Father by pointing to his finished work on the cross when we sin. But don't forget that John is, as he says in chapter two, verse one, writing these things so that you may not sin. He didn't write about God's grace so you could breathe a sigh of relief and remove the urgency of obedience so that you can now go about your life as you see fit. But it's that going about your life that John is warning us about here. It's a lie to claim to be in relationship with God while choosing to disregard his commandments. John leaves no room for you to think you can believe in one direction and walk consistently in another. That's nonsense and reeks of false belief. But in verse five, whoever keeps his word, in him truly the love of God is perfected. What does that mean? I wonder when this first appearance in this letter of the word agape was being penned by John right here in verse five, that there was an intent to drive people to wrestle with the incredible implications of God's love in us. Because the wrestlings of many faithful Bible scholars on the meaning of this sentence are extensive. And it has stirred my heart as I've studied it. But whoever keeps his word in him truly, the love of God is perfected. Let's consider first the meaning of love of God. Agape tu theou. Grammatically in isolation, it could mean love from God, love to God, or God-like love, or there are other descriptive options, including some or all of the above. In this first appearance of agape, I think what John means by love of God is more fully expressed in chapter 4, 10 to 12. Um, let's turn there for a second. Chapter 4, 10 to 12. Listen carefully to this. In this is love. Not that we have loved God, but that he loved us and sent his son to be the propitiation for our sins. Loved ones, if God so loved us, we also ought to love one another. No one has ever seen God. If we love one another, God abides in us and his love is perfected in us. So there it is again, his love perfected in us. There in chapter four, God is described as the source of love. And through Christ, it is poured out on us. And as loved ones, we then love one another, and thus his love is perfected in us. And we'll discuss perfected in a second, but I think love that comes from God, also implying a God-like quality of love, must be in mind in the first reference to love of God in chapter two, verse five. 
He's giving us a first taste of what John is at pains to show us throughout the letter. The big picture of love moves from God to the believer and then from the believer to one another and back to God. We are neither the source nor the terminus of divine love. And the use of the word love or completed could be translated, excuse me, the word perfected or completed helps us to see the aim of God's love. It's being met in the person who keeps his word. It doesn't complete its goal in self-love or a hoarding of God's love to oneself. Love is always outward focused. The intended purpose of God's love in you is that it radiates from you and comes full circle in a life of obedience. And we'll see that idea developed in the next section. We could almost reframe it and say, the beloved of Christ become Christ-like lovers of one another. That's the picture. He then summarized this section back to chapter two and verse six. By this we may know that we are in him. Whoever says he abides in him ought to walk the same way in which he walked. See now how he's developed the terms that he's been using. He now frames knowing God as being in him and abiding in him. And the idea of keeping his commandments and word is framed in terms of imitation. Walk in the same way in which he walked. So the sign of authentic abiding relationship with God is that your walk, your living, begins to look like Christ. In the light, we have an awareness and conviction of our sin leading to confession and repentance again and again, and we grow with all the marvelous passion, uh, provisions of Christ to declare you righteous and conform you to his image. But embracing sin is not a valid option for a believer. Our conduct matters. Practical conformity to his will, to his commandments, is part of knowing God. And it's a stern warning to those who would use God's presumed mercy to practically remove God from their life. The one who has done that has every reason to question the authenticity of their claim to know God. But sweet assurance to those who are striving towards Christ and who experience the transformative work of the Holy Spirit in their lives. And John keeps coming back to encouraging words to his readers saying, be assured. Stick to what you've heard from the start, from the beginning. Don't be lured by new, absurd, contradictory notions about what it means to truly have fellowship with God. But even with John's emphasis on that which was from the beginning and the message you heard from the beginning, there's something new John wants us to know about. Brings us to the next section. Love is a timeless commandment, newly animated in God's children in an age of light shining and darkness passing. John has primed us now for the narrowing of his focus to one commandment. And just like he built up anticipation in the first few verses by delaying the explicit mention of Christ, so here, he builds up love without explicitly saying the word, but he begins addressing them as loved ones for the first time. Let's read it. Starting at verse seven, I'll read it. 
Beloved, I'm writing to you no new commandment, but an old commandment that you had from the beginning. The old commandment is the word that you have heard. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I'm writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. So the command to love is a familiar one. It's not new, he says, it's old. John isn't introducing it for the first time. Jesus didn't introduce it for the first time during his ministry. The command to love reaches all the way back. Matthew 22, 36 to 40. Teacher, what is the great commandment of the law? Jesus said to him, you shall love the Lord your God with all your heart, with all your soul, with all your mind. And this is the great and first commandment. And second is like it. You shall love your neighbor as yourself. On these two commandments depend all the law and the prophets. In a world that places such high value on the new, new teachings, new ideas, new research, new innovations, Jesus reminds us that the most important commandment has been historically fixed. And John's repeated exhortations to hold fast to that which you heard from the beginning tells us not only that old truths don't go out of date, but also have authority and strength behind them. But then we have verse eight. At the same time, it is a new commandment that I am writing you. Okay. At first glance for me, this has always been a little bit confusing. What is John doing? Can he really have it both ways? Can you have the cake and eat it too? Is he saying, think of the old commandment in a fresh new way? But let's read on. I think he explains. Back to verse 8. At the same time, it is the new commandment that I am writing to you, which is true in him and in you, because the darkness is passing away and the true light is already shining. Light and darkness again. Light, which we've already seen, is God himself, the radiance of truth and moral goodness, and darkness as evil and falsehood apart from God's presence. And here, that transcendent, unchangeable light is coming in the world and doing something. Since the true light, which gives light to everyone, has come into the world, as declared in John 1, 9, we are in a new age of darkness yielding to light. You hear the excitement here. And John Calvin wrote of the word becoming flesh. Therefore, since Christ, the son of righteousness, has shown while before there was only dim light, we have the perfect radiance of divine truth, like the wanton brilliance of midday. And darkness is still darkness, but the, wor but the word passing there is the same word used in the gospel narratives as a person just walking by. For the present form of this world is passing away, Paul says in 1 Corinthians 7.31. Light has the upper hand in Christ even when it doesn't seem like it. Christ, the true light in which all other lights point, is on the move. He's triumphed over evil and death and the message of salvation is spreading and the multiplication of disciples all over the face of the earth until the day he returns and reigns. But what does this note of triumph have to do 
with the newness to love. With the newness of the command to love. Let's talk about that. Let's talk about how Christ's first coming has renewed the command. One way in which it was renewed is that Christ himself exemplified humble, servant-hearted love. Until Christ's first coming, there had been no perfect human example of love. But as Philippians 2.5 puts it, though he was in the form of God, did not count equality with God a thing to be grasped, but emptied himself, taking the form of a servant. The creator and sovereign, not as if he needed us, but because he loved us, was born in impoverished conditions, taking on the life of a servant, which meant putting the needs of others before his own needs. Whether it was for his friends like Mary or, and Lazarus in John eleven five, or those who were lost like the rich young ruler answering his question and calling him to himself out of love, it says in Mark ten twenty one, Or the numerous times Jesus had compassion for the crowd's and those on the fringe. For his family, making sure his mother was provided for even while he was hanging on a cross. John 19, 26 and 27. And his love expressed to his murderers, saying, Lord, forgive them, for they don't know what they're doing. What an example of love we've been given in Christ. And the glimpses of love also within the triune God as he always loved his heavenly father saying John 15:10 I have kept my father's commandments and abide in his love. And then that culturally shocking moment when Jesus took the posture of servant before his own disciples in washing their feet in John 14. And it was on that occasion that the command to love was renewed in another way. He looked at them who he had loved faithfully to the end and said, just as I have loved you, just as I have loved you, so you must love one another. The exemplar of love himself issuing the command. But there's more. His biggest act of love was still to come. It was coming that night and the next day. We'll let these verses speak. Romans 5, 7 to 8. For one will scarcely die for a righteous person, though perhaps for a good person one would dare even to die. But God showed his love for us in that while we were still sinners, Christ died for us. In 1 John 3.16, by this we know love, that he laid down his life for us and we ought to lay down our lives for the brothers. We who have observed the perfect example of love and we who have been commanded to love according to that example and we who are recipients of the greatest act of love. Can we obey this command? Not yet. If not for the regenerating power 
of his love and the sanctifying work of his spirit, we would be incapable of living it. It's his capacity that enables us. The phrase that I admittedly glossed over at first, that which is true in you and in him, tells us there is something alive in us. The word used for true is broader than a factually true, but rather truly expressed, truly realized. The surprising choice, too, of the the relative pronoun there of which in the Greek has to match with what it's referring to, and you'd think it's talking about the commandment, but it doesn't match. It doesn't seem to match with anything. Scholars have noted that this seems to broaden the idea of what it's referring to from a mere ethical imperative to a living truth. The command is new, finally, because our Lord himself is animating his love within us and helping us to walk in a pattern of love that looks like Jesus. The timeless commandment is new in Christ shining because in it we've observed Christ's love and because he himself commands us to love and because we're receivers of Christ's love and it's new because we are enabled to to Love like him, through him and by him. So with love in full view, we move to part three. Lovers of one another fellowship in the light, and haters stumble alone in the dark. Let me read from nine to ten. Whoever says he is in the light and hates his brother is still in darkness. Whoever loves his brother abides in the light. And in him there is no cause for stumbling. But whoever hates his brother is in the darkness and walks in the darkness. Does not know where he is going because the darkness has blinded his eyes. So again, we have these alternating statements contrasting the counterfeit from the genuine. But this time, instead of to keep or not to keep God's commandments, It is to love or hate God's family. And the scene is before us again, light on one side, darkness on the other. For the one who hates his brother, a family member in Christ, is wandering in the dark. The one who loves his brother is fellowshipping in the light with the inseparable bond that we have in Christ. Since the lovers of one another are in the light, they can see one another. They see their path in front of them and walk uprightly. But the hater stumbles alone in the dark, and ironically, it's that person who hates his brother that thinks they see. They think they have a reason to hate. They get it. But in fact their vision is already blinded by the world of hate that they're living in. They see nothing, it says. So we don't evaluate and then decide to love or hate. It's rather in a world of light, in the fellowship with God, that we truly see one another through the eyes of Christ and through the eyes of his love. In the light, all who walk in it know they're completely lost without the grace of Christ. What right have we to hate anyone who Christ has died for and clothed in righteousness? Hate might seem like a word reserved for the worst of the worst, but 
We're all prone to it. It can lurk, festering in our thoughts, all kinds of justifications. It can disguise itself in indifference. But remember the evidences of darkness and those cursed to eternal destruction in Matthew 25. You did not feed me. You did not, did not give me something to drink. You did not welcome me. You did not clothe me. You did not visit me because what you didn't do unto the least of these, you didn't do unto me, says Christ. But on the flip side, the cause for celebration, whatever you do to the least of your brothers and sisters, you do it unto Christ. The opportunity to pour out our love to Christ is here in this fellowship towards one another. Will we respond to the opportunity and lean on his enabling to help us? Don't minimize the warning nor the cause for celebration here. In community, we bump heads sometimes. We're sharing the same space, but we love one another. Sometimes love can be difficult. It can be tough love. It can be, there can be discretion on how. Sometimes healing takes time. Sometimes boundaries are necessary. Relationships are complicated, but we are a family. And the Father pleads with us to love one another. Consider the qualities of love Paul lists for us and ask yourself, is this what my relationship looks like in the church, whether in your household or those you just pass by in the lobby? 1 Corinthians 13, 4 to 8, love is patient, love is kind, love does not envy or boast, it is not arrogant or rude, it does not insist on its own way, it's not irritable or resentful. It does not rejoice at wrongdoing, but rejoices with the truth. Love bears all, believes all things, hopes all things, endures all things. Love never ends. Earlier we sung the words, how I long to breathe the air of heaven. In his sermon called A Heaven, A World of Love, Jonathan Edwards describes a biblical vision of heaven as a place where love abounds. I'd like to read a few excerpts from it as we close, and the, the team is going to come back and we're going to respond in rejoicing together. Here it is. In every heart in heaven, love dwells and reigns. The heart of God is the original seat or subject of love. Divine love is in him, not in a subject that receives it from another, but as in its original seat, where it is of itself, love is in God. As light is in the sun, which does not shine by reflected light as the moon and planets do, but by its own light and as the great fountain of light. And from God, love flows out towards all the inhabitants of heaven. It flows out in innumerable streams toward all the created inhabitants of heaven to all the saints and angels there. And love, the love of God the Father flows out toward Christ the head and to all the members through him in whom they were beloved before the foundation of the world and in whom the Father's love was expressed toward them in time by his death and sufferings and is now fully manifest in heaven.
and the angels and saints all love each other. All the members of the glorious society of heaven are sincerely united. There is not a single secret or open enemy among them all. Not a heart is there that is not full of love. Not a solitary inhabitant that is not beloved by all the others. And as all are lovely, so all see each other's loveliness with full delight. Every soul goes out in love and ever to every other. And among all the blessed inhabitants, love is mutual and full and eternal. What a vision. Brothers and sisters, those blessed inhabitants who will finally fully love and receive such love from one another are those sitting around you in this room. In love, let's experience together the assurance that we are in him. Let's embrace the timeless commandment knowing Christ newly animates it in us. Let's fellowship with one another in the light of his presence, the world of love, until we rejoice together around his throne. Our Father, we thank you that you have bound us together in Christ that you have gathered us and made us one in him. Lord, we rejoice that we can gather together as brothers and sisters. Lord, we pray now that you would help us remember your command to love, the old and new command. And we pray as we sing this song, you would give us a heart that truly agrees with the words we sing. Look at what the Lord has done. Now, let us love with the love of Jesus. Help us with that, Lord. We pray it in Jesus' name. Amen.